This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. June Hirsch is an everything bagel. Allow me to explain a bit. The merits of doing well, then doing good, are front and center for June. She's an author, speaker, and food archivist who will be the first one to agree that she doesn't have an inside voice. As a food writer and cookbook author, she's been using food to help Holocaust survivors tell their stories, and she writes books with a charitable flavor. She gets around, and you may have seen her mesmerizing a crowd at a book reading or even lighting up your TV on QVC. Coming up, you'll hear about many things, from why recipes have changed as women have changed through the years, why plant-based yogurt may be the next big thing, and, well, wait till you hear what the concept of the one-woman kitchen means to her. In the vast culinary landscape we share, we are all carving out a place for ourselves. Each of us, in our own way, is a one-woman kitchen. I'm Roseanne Gold, and welcome to my kitchen. June, before we got started, you said something that just made me really laugh out loud. You said you don't have an inside voice. (laughs) And that you have a very sonorous voice. So tell me a little bit about that and how that may, in fact, connect to your life in the culinary world. Well, I think it it connects very specifically, first of all, and in more than one way. The first way was really after I wrote the first book that I'm sure we're going to discuss, Recipes Remembered, I would go on book talks and I would go to rooms that were as intimate as somebody's living room where there were maybe a dozen women there or to a large space where it was a Hadassah organization and I was speaking to several hundred people. I never used a microphone. Number one, I find using a microphone to reduce the intimacy of of the actual event. I feel that it prevented me from using my hands, which are very expressive, which you can't see right now if you're listening to this, <laughs> but, but I they can. are expressive. <laughs> and it prevents you from being able to smile the way you want to and emote the way you feel. And it also would make me have to modulate my voice because when you're speaking into a microphone, it's amplifying for you. And I was talking about a topic that I felt so passionate about that I felt my inside voice was just not going to do it justice, that I had to really magnify my enthusiasm and my involvement and my passion for this project. And the only way I could do it was not to use an inside voice. And I think ever since then, my inside voice has just gone home, it's closed the door, it's locked itself away, <laughs> and nobody has heard from it ever since. <laughs> June, that's wonderful and gorgeous and such a metaphor, I think, for just who you are, right? Because our voice really does symbolize our uh, essence in many ways and um, our personality. And anyway, it's so such a pleasure to have you here, even though your inside voice is locked away, never to be seen. But also something, um, you have children. In fact, before we delve into your very delicious history, uh, I wanted to talk to you about your email address. 
It is Proud Mom 18. Yes. Uh, tell me about Proud Mom 18. Well, back in the day when it was <laughs> AOL and that was all we knew, uh, I really felt that that was how I saw myself. And in some ways, I'm very I'm very pleased that that was my persona, that I identified myself as a proud mother. I came from a, a legacy of very proud women who are... Um, who felt good about what they accomplished in their own lives, but also what they imbued in their children. So I looked at myself and I said, so what would be my handle? What would be my identification? And at that time, I was a very proud mom. Proud mom two was taken. I have two children. So 18 being high and being my uh, lucky number. I went right for Proud Mom 18, and I'm, I'm going to say I, I, I mention it all the time when somebody comments on the email address that I am really lucky my kids did not screw up because I would have <laughs> had to go to the trouble of changing my email address had that been the case. At this point, I'm now tempted to shift to Proud Nana. Uh, I'm looking to see if Proud Nana 3 is available because I have three beautiful grandchildren, but I'll stick with Proud Mom 18 for the time being. It's wonderful. Really Thank just you. wonderful. I, I didn't think it referred to 18 children, but, no. uh, you know, wasn't, wasn't no, sure. Then that would be exhausted Mom 18 <laughs> and not Proud Mom 18. But right now it's, uh, it's very applicable. Very much the proud mother of Wonderful. two You look very daughters. young. It's hard to believe you actually have three, Thank you. three I, grandchildren. I appreciate that. A woman yesterday in the store stopped me and she said, do you have children in college? And I said, no, I have grandchildren. And she said, you have grandchildren in college? And I said, <laughs> well, I'm old. I'm not elderly. And I, I walked away not feeling quite as good as I had when she first asked me if I had children in college. But... Thank you. And I guess they all call you Nana, hence they the... They do. Um, I, I aimed for Grandma, but I, I got Nana and I took it and I'm thrilled. Thank you so much. Um, so let's talk about your delicious history because I know you were in, in business for a very, very long time and then segued in a way that I believe so many people, men and women, but maybe specifically women, uh, would love to have this trajectory um, it seems as though you are a great, great home cook, and we'll talk more about that. But from from business to really owning this um, title of great home cook, you became a writer, and you became a cookbook writer, and I know you're working on different projects as well. But your first book is um, so poignant and so full of meaning and a hard sell. And I'm, I don't know the story behind it at all. So I'm very, very interested to hear. I know it's called Recipes Remembered. It's sold very, very well. But it's about the Holocaust and recipes during the Holocaust. So how, how did this start? I will go back to 2004. We were in a family business, a lighting company uh, named for my dad, Murray Feiss. And we all worked in it. Every family member, uh, my grandparents were there when we, when my sister and I and my husband and brother-in-law first came into the business. My mom worked there. We all shared an office, my sister, my mother, and I. It was quite, quite a sight and quite a sound to be heard because they don't have inside voices either. And... In 2004, we sold the company. It was just the right time. We were out of generations who were going to carry on the legacy, and we sold the business. And my very wise big sister, Andrea, said to me, we did well. Now let's do good. Mm. And I loved it. 
I mm. love the comment, and it resonated so. And she found her good with the Israel Cancer Research Foundation, the Israel Cancer Research Fund, I should say. And that was her outlet. And I wasn't sure what mine was going to be. But I knew it was going to revolve around cooking and writing because I've always written. I studied journalism in college along with elementary education. I wrote for magazines on education for a number of years. And it was something that I loved doing just even recreationally. I would just write. It's a way that I would express myself, even if I only wrote it for myself. So I became involved with the Museum of Jewish Heritage, Living Memorial to the Holocaust, which is down in Battery City. It's a beautiful and place. It is beautiful. And uh, I like to say that it's its position, where it's situated, really speaks to its philosophy because it's it's poised between Ellis Island and the Statue of Liberty. And I think it really reflects our past mm. as a people, not just as a Jewish people, but as a people. And yet it looks to the values that we hope this country embodies um, and that we live up to our, our potential. And I the museum just sits there, and, and that's its vision. It's what it looks at, and I think it's also what drives the museum. And our family became involved, and we were supportive of it financially. And one day I went to them and I said, I have an idea. I want to write a cookbook, mm. and I want to write the recipes of members of your museum. I want to recreate them. I want to tell their story, and I want to convey the importance of the thread between remembering those wonderful childhood memories mm. of food and what it meant to us and how it brought them through the war from what I like to say was tragedy to triumph and how mm. those recipes lived on in the homes of these survivors and hopefully in the spirit of Lador Vador that they will go on from generation to generation. And that's how the cookbook initially got started. Well, it's such a Beautiful, such a compelling idea. But, um, you know, as soon as you mentioned the word Holocaust, um, anyone's Holocaust, and put it together with food, this is kind of a hard sell. There is a body of literature now called Holocaust literature, obviously, but even within that kind of a niche that has to do with food. And there was a very well-known book called In Memory's Kitchen. Which yes. you had asked me to give some thought to who might have influenced me. And I would say Cara De Silva, who wrote, who edited in Memory's Kitchen, yes. um, was a great influence in this field. Uh, she saw the connection from the women at Teretz Inn who put their recipes not down, well, on paper, but not meant to ever be cooked from, but it was a way of them keeping their heritage and their history alive. And it's, a, it's a, just a beautiful, compelling book. For anyone who, out there who has a really interesting idea and wants to write a cookbook, what do you do? Okay, so what you do, first of all, is you find your passion. That is the absolute first thing you do. And, you know, it, it goes to almost anything you do in life. If if you are really not invested in it, it, it's not going to come out authentic. And there's a really good chance you're not going to see it through. Mm. So when I had first decided that I was going to write this book and I, I left the meeting at the museum and I went, oh my goodness, <laughs> I now, now what, actually now have to do this. <laughs> I started with with two first steps, if you can have two first steps. 
because they were almost done simultaneously. One was I enrolled at a class at the new school with this amazing gentleman who I will absolutely give a shout out. I call him my guardian angel, Andrew F. Smith. He is awesome in the food world, um, but he is somebody who you just want to have on your side as an advocate. And he was teaching a class at the new school on how to write a cookbook. So that was step one. And at the same time as I was doing that, I arranged for my first interview, which was with a remarkable woman. Her name is Regina Finer. And I discuss her in the introduction to the book because had that not gone well, <laughs> honestly, right. I don't know if I would have completed the project. But it was such, it was just such an amazing encounter with this woman who embodied the spirit of what I celebrated in the book because the book is really not – it could have been maudlin and it could mm -hmm. have been sad. And it's not. It's it's celebratory. And the word, right. And you use the word celebration. That's in our subtitle. Right. It is a celebration of survival because mm. most Holocaust literature, as well it should be, focuses on – the 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 horrific aspects of the Holocaust, and we should never forget what happens when when we lose our ability to tolerate others and to respect every person for who they are. Having said that, the people in this book, in Recipes Remembered, they shared with me the joyful connection between food mm. and their lives, and they their stories focus on really life-affirming moments of what the holiday meant to them when they were children before the mm -hmm. war, yeah. what the ability to celebrate Passover on a ship coming over after the war as a, as a refugee meant to them, how it meant to be in a, in a DP camp and be able to once again cook the dishes that your grandparents, who you've now lost, and your parents, who you now lost for the most part, but how it kept their memories alive. The book celebrates, and I will use that word over and over again, this feeling of food being a connection to our best moments in life and our best memories. So, June, this is really remarkable because uh, in addition to the idea of recipes and food and Holocaust, also the idea of the word celebration is um, is, is tricky. In your very first um, interview, you helped her connect to the positive and the joy, because I would imagine there's even some discomfort using those two words in the same sentence. It feels almost a little improbable to have actually experienced it, gone through it, lost people, and still want to go to that place of of joy and punctuated by the memory memory of food. So that's really very, very powerful. Well, thank you for the compliment. And I, I will say that any of any of that that you hear in my voice when I discuss this project, it is truly, no pun intended, I am feeding off the energy of the people that I that I met. Uh, one was more incredible than the next. And But you gave them permission to. You gave them permission to make those connections that they Thank might not you. have felt comfortable. Thank you. It but, was a good yeah. give and take. We always started at a happy place. <laughs> we never started with talking about the war. We always started with talking about family because I think for most people and because most of my subjects were women, 
for most women, you talk about their family, you put people at ease, and it it's it you just go to that happy place. And from there we were able to delve into some of the you know, the less positive aspects of their experience. And Lord knows they were forever changed and forever scarred by what they went through. But mm-hmm. the fact is they came out the other end. And many of the people I've met have said the best revenge is that they led a good life and that they were able to pick up the pieces. And for many of them, it really came through cooking. Beautiful. And of course, cooking is the big metaphor for nourishing, right? And it's also the essence of what it means to be to be alive. So that's so beautiful. I love the timing of this too, June, because obviously there are many, many refugees in the country now and many people are leaving precious, you know, histories behind. And I think there's an opportunity listening to your story for many people to think about this and maybe interview uh, people in their neighborhood and people who live in their communities to start doing uh, such a such a no, cookbook to no question. M- memorialize this. Yes. Coming up, you'll hear June walk us through the steps of actually how to go about producing a cookbook. a cooking tip to share. I found a new way to cook spinach. It is so hard to cram a pound of spinach into a big pot, so instead I put it on a sheet pan, and I call it sheet pan spinach. All you do is preheat your oven to 500 degrees, yes, 500 degrees, and you toss spinach with some olive oil, one to two tablespoons, and you just cook it for two minutes. Then my secret is to spritz it with water from a spritz bottle, and you cook it two minutes longer. That's it. You add some salt and some pepper, maybe some fresh thyme, and you have the most delicious cooked spinach. And I really think it's easier to wash a sheet pan than a big pot. So from my kitchen to yours, give it a try and pass it along. June, we're so pleased you're here and can help us uh, realize our fantasies about possibly either self-publishing or what are the steps to go in making a cookbook if you haven't done one before, or if you're not a known person in the food world, or if you don't have, quote, a platform. I don't know if you've come up against that term very often, but for new uh, authors, one of the first things a publisher will ask is, what's your platform? Meaning, are you on TV or radio or... Um, are you writing for magazines? And that is becoming increasingly crucial. There are so many answers to this question because it's interesting. Recipes Remembered was a book that was published by Rudafin Press, who every year does, and I don't know if they still do, but they did at the time, one what they call socially conscious charitable publication. Mm. Andy, who I had mentioned prior as my angel, (laughs) after several publishers, mainstream publishers, did not accept the book, put me in touch with Ruta Finn. We went in for a meeting and they said, we're on board. We are going to publish your book. And they took the manuscript that I presented, they edited it, they, they 
formatted it. They did all the, you know, put my photographs in the the proper context and order. They designed what I think is a compelling cover for the book. I was involved in all the, the steps and the processes. But having said that, they did an amazingly beautiful job of of building this book. Yes, it is and beautiful. And they truly did it out of the goodness of their hearts. So I didn't self-publish. My second book came about my agent, who I will tell everybody, you have to have a literary agent, and you should do a lot of research and find somebody who really specializes in the field that you're doing. And even within the field of cookbooks, it really runs the gamut from what type of cookbook is it going to be, you know, heavily photographed? Is it going to have stories, which I think are crucial to the, any good cookbook should have great stories that go along with it. And so my agent on this book brought the idea of my second book, The Kosher Carnivore, (laughs) to the attention of St. Martin's Press. And St. Martin's Press happily published the second book. And it was a very different experience because I was a little bit, not a little bit, I was (laughs) a lot less involved in the process. Um, I benefited financially ever so slightly from it, whereas (laughs) Recipes Remembered was a charitable project for my family as well. So we helped defray the cost of publishing and printing the books. And I am very proud to say that we have sold close to 20,000 copies. Which is really remarkable. I have not kept a penny of any proceeds from the book. It has Mm. all gone to either the Museum of Jewish Heritage or to whatever organization I spoke on behalf of, they benefited from the sales of the book. And those are the the two people who profited. I profited in ways that you cannot possibly put a dollar sign in front of. Oh, we'll definitely want to hear about that. But having yeah. said that, um, not financially. So I had two very different experiences. My third book was a book that was published, um, I'm going to say probably a vanity publishing that I did. It was a photography book Mm. uh, with a a great photographer in New York City, Brian Marcus, whose grandfather, Fred, was a Holocaust survivor. Brian was photographing Holocaust survivors, Mm. and he needed somebody to interview them. It gave me that fabulous connection again to this community that I, I was really missing. And at this point, you were really seasoned. And you, and, you know, this. and I was so immersed in it. And I really missed it. While I'm proud of the second book, it didn't have my heart and soul. I'm, I'm, I didn't promote it the same way. It, it was a cookbook and the recipes are, are you know, they can hold up. And I, <laughs> and I cook from it regularly. But having said that, it certainly wasn't something that, that captured, you know, the same emotion for me as, as recipes remembered. So it was wonderful to be back in that circle of, the survivor mm. community. And we added the feature of having liberators in the book as well and hearing their commentary and eliciting quotes from them on the meaning of life, which is what the book was, uh, how to live your life now that you've gone through the Holocaust. And that book is just this gorgeous uh, black and white coffee table book called Still Here. So that mm, was I have now, not seen that yet. Oh, it's so just, I can't it's, wait. it's truly beautiful. It's striking. And, and Ellie Wiesel is on our cover. It was the last formal portrait he ever took. Brian went into his personal study and he allowed him to be photographed in this very intimate photo. And he provided a quote, which was the forward for our book. So it added so many other layers of meaning and, and that book benefited in large part um, self-help, an arm of UJA that um, supports 
Holocaust survivors in the New York area. So it's another project I was able to feel really good about. And then to totally deviate, because I've now had three very different experiences. And how short of a time? Uh, Recipes Remembered came out in May 2011. Kosher Carnivore came out in September of 2011. So the moment I finished writing Recipes Remembered, I began writing the Kosher Carnivore. One took longer to publish than the other, and they came out within three months of each other. Most still, unusual. It was it was <laughs> crazy. Uh, still here came out about two years ago, so I had a, a real gap, which gave me a nice time to kind of be a grandmother and and <laughs> settle into that role, which. Now I needed to maybe augment a little bit, but I really didn't want to take away from that joy. And now I'm writing a book, again, for a mainstream publisher, but one in the UK, and one that's really more of a global perspective, part of a series called the Edible Series. And my book is the global history of, of all things, yogurt. And so, again, a very completely different departure. You know, recipes remembered when I wrote the book and I was testing all the recipes and rewriting so many of them. I well, do want to hear about keeping that, the foundation that of the original recipe, but having to obviously assign measurements. You know, the, the recipes came at me with <laughs> adabissal of this and a I, handful of that. I love this phrase, assign and to assign measurements. My husband <laughs> laughed because at the end of the year, he said, for one year, we've eaten like Polish peasants. And that was the <laughs> truth. And then kosher carnivore, all we were doing were eating meat and poultry and these rich foods. And now I'm making yogurt. I'm fermenting yogurt in my home on a weekly basis. So I have really been on quite a quite a little quite culinary a journey. journey. And you it's certainly have. it's been so much fun. You may be the very embodiment of one woman kitchen. We're <laughs> going to talk about that a little bit later. So um, the book about yogurt, though, when you talk about a, gl- a global history, so where do you start? With Neolithic man. <laughs> it is just astounding. And this is bringing out the journalistic, scholarly side of yes. you. Yes. Okay. I feel like I am back in college writing a term paper. I am going to the New York Public Library and doing research. I've worked my way through three highlighters. It's <laughs> It's just, I'm, I'm really, it is such a different project than anything else I've done. It's also probably the only project I've done where it's been very um, insular. I've only really, I, I haven't spoken to that many people other than, oh, a goat herder and, um, you know, somebody who brews, you know, uh, Persian milk in their home and, and another person who is fermenting kimchi with the residual whey. And so that's been, it, it's been fascinating. fascinating. It is taking me really on a, on a global journey in directions that Honestly, I I, I mean, but you can go all around the world with this. I mean, there's no you, is there a culture that doesn't have yogurt no, in some way or some no, truly not. Dairy? And mm. what I find fascinating is the connection between some of what I've learned um, when yogurt was first made back in the day, and we're going back to maybe six thousand BCE. Oh, wow. They dried it out. They let it dry in the sun. And then they would grate it. And they would grate it and it would very good and it would become hard and it was called something called kashk. Yes. Yes. Right. Well, that sounds an awful lot like kishka and kasha. Yeah. And it is (laughs) because both of them started with taking barley grains and allowing the barley grains in the in uh, prehistoric times with with fermented milk and that created kashk 
course, kasha is barley grains that we toast the groats and we mix it with other things or not. But that word etymology is so fascinating that there is a connection from 6500 BCE to what an Eastern European Ashkenazi person might be preparing in their home today. I mean, I let I alone just, Mr. Chobani, right? Right, um, exactly. Are, will you be interviewing him for the book? Um, I, I will say that I've reached out to some of the larger manufacturers, and while uh, Dannon has been incredibly receptive, that some of the larger ones maybe don't really want to be bothered and inundated with questions. But the small, but they've never met June Hirsch before. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to think that if I change QVC's mind about featuring a Jewish cookbook on QVC, I'd like to think I could change the mind. Of, of maybe Chobani yogurt and have them meet with me and sit down and, and talk about yogurt because they, they were groundbreaking. But the directions yogurt are going is just, it's fascinating. So that uh, I'm afraid I'm restricted to 20,000 words. And as you can tell from, from this conversation we're having, uh, limiting my word count is really not an easy thing to do. So. And we have to limit this, unfortunately, to only one podcast. I, I feel that I feel the same. Um, actually, speaking of directions in yogurt, though, I, I know one that started creeping up uh, two or three years ago was this idea of vegetable mm-hmm. yogurts. I think uh, the next Dan Barber Stone Barnes was doing that. That's correct. Uh, what What else are you seeing in terms of trends? Well, I'm going to say that is the major trend. Um, Gen Y, who in my chapter is called Gen Yogurt um, <laughs> because they are truly the Wonderful. millennials who are driving the market in what we're seeing in yogurt and um, probably in so many food categories. So plant-based is is huge, whether it's oat milk, almond milk, coconut milk. Oh, and then these are all becoming yogurts. All so, becoming oh, yogurts. See. Okay. Huge, I didn't actually wasn't aware. Huge trend in yeah. yogurt. And I think you're going to start to see um, that occupying a lot of space in the, in the dairy aisle. Clean labeling, mm-hmm. I think, um, as we should – People should really be reading what is on the container of every food they are buying. I bring my reading glasses to the supermarket. (laughs) It is more important than my marketing list. And you really need to examine it with yogurt. You want to buy something that has live and active cultures, but you also want to look for how much sugar are they really adding? And, you know, what are some of the the negatives that you're getting in that food stuff. So clean labeling has become a really important trend as well. Yes. And the idea of transparency and uh, just clean. Clean is just becoming um, a big topic for for sure. I mean, we're very global, but being need to be very local is like really important. And so I think you see that in a lot of your your food stuffs, yogurt being one of them. Yes. And the book about yogurt and history, you are now connecting maybe not to individuals, maybe some, but to a much bigger story and bigger history that's bringing you to the very beginning of civilization. And I can tell how exciting that is for you. The one that didn't really quite do it for you in the same way was the one of you in your your very own kitchen creating the recipes. And I do want to hear about some of the more more stellar ones. Um, But it feels like uh, you... Love the the connection yes. to larger things I think, and the food that story tells. I agree. I think I felt a little isolated writing the kosher carnivore, and I will divulge something that in all these years I don't think I've actually said publicly. I'm not kosher, and so <laughs> it felt a little bit inauthentic for mm. me, even though I was able to. I'd like to think pull it off, and I so respect those who embrace 
the dietary laws and observe them, whether they're kosher, whether they're halal, whether they're whatever speaks to you in your own personal life, as long as you follow it, well, good for you. Kosher was not something that was ever part of my life. Mm-hmm. And but so you had I, the skill set and the deep knowledge to, to do it well. I hope I pulled it off. But there was part of me that every day felt less authentic in writing that book than I did in writing Recipes Remembered or I did in speaking to the survivors and the liberators and still here. And even in writing the book on yogurt, because at this point now, it's yours. I've drunk the Kool-Aid. <laughs> I started this book not being a huge fan of yogurt. I'm going to be honest. I ate it sporadically. But now I realize the merits in it. I have begun to make it at home myself routinely. My grandchildren look forward to it every week to get a new fresh batch of yogurt and frozen yogurt. My husband, it's, he's surviving. If he ate like an 80-year-old Polish peasant during Recipes Remembered, <laughs> he's now eating like, uh, you know, somebody in Bulgaria. A Bulgarian you know, peasant. Right. It's it's really, <laughs> I, I, I love the global aspect of it. I love how foods connect people. Well, I think what I'm hearing as well, uh, you know, you tell us to find something that we really love to do. And uh, I, I love that you put, even if it's selling flowers, you know, so be it, how beautiful. But that you um, love connecting to people and to n- newer things. And um, and that's very exciting. Up next, you'll hear June's secret or guilty pleasures. You'll hear some cooking tips. And June will also share her legacy recipe with us. And the gate to the garden of fulfilled desire is reached by a road. Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold and check out everything I'm up to on my website at roseannegold.com. Before we hear about June's guilty pleasures or some of her secrets, um, I'd like to talk a little bit about recipes and their evolution. And recipes always tell larger stories. And I'm wondering what they might tell about women's evolving over the last many decades and centuries. Um, Yeah, maybe you can put that together. Well, I'll tell you, uh, there are so many funny stories. And I I always say I laughed more than I cried while writing Recipes Remembered. (laughs) There are so many funny stories that I heard and that I encountered as I sat in the kitchens of these wonderful women. Uh, and one, most of them would be in, in their 80s now, Yes. Right? Yes. Okay. My, my youngest, and I do say my survivors, my youngest survivor is, you know, the, the war ended, it was 70 plus years ago. So you did have a, a few that were really infants or, or children. They could have been in their mid-70s at the time that I spoke to them, but now everyone is really firmly well into their 80s and uh, and many of them in their 90s. So, and, uh, and I speak to them routinely. And one of them, I get jokes from almost every day on my email. It's just, <laughs> it, I look forward to them every day. So thank you, Wolfie. Um, but as far as the recipes go, it it's very interesting because the book started with one woman telling me, and it was Regina, that you used to be able to judge a balabusta by how many braids she would make in her challah. Oh. And she would say that my mother, and we all judge. She says, we were very judgy. She says, and we would open <laughs> up our doors on, on Shabbat and the women would come 
into everybody's homes. Everybody, all the families would just go into each other's homes and enjoy pieces of Shabbat together as a community, which the whole concept of is something that, uh, unfortunately, I, I think we've we've lost. And it was probably one of the more meaningful, less, less religious, but more secular, positive aspects of actually celebrating a, a Friday night dinner. And she said, so we judged them by how their hollas looked. She says, we judged them by, we all went to the bakery and we would take the, the pots of cholent out of the ovens as they would sit from the residual heat during Shabbat and they would cook all day and all night and we would take them out and everybody's cholent looked different and we were able to judge. And she said, and that's when we were really working hard to make these dishes. She says, and then after the war, we started to realize we didn't have to work as hard as we were working and we could adapt some of our techniques. And while my mother would hand, hand grate the potatoes, well, I know how to Cuisinart <laughs> and my Cuisinart could grate the potatoes. And that took to even one step further that when I was in this wonderful woman's home and I said to her, tell me, what's your signature recipe? And she said, oh, I make the best matzo balls. And I said, really? I said, you know, my mother used to make sinkers because they're either floaters or sinkers. And they would sit like lead in, in the <laughs> bottom of our bellies. And we'd know when Passover was over, quite frankly, when we passed the matzo balls. Usually took about eight days. And she said, well, I used to make matzo balls that if you threw them at a wall, it would make a hole in the wall. And I laughed. And I said, so how did you tweak the recipe? How did it evolve? She says, well, I took my mother's recipe and with that, she opened up her cupboard and she takes out a box of Streit's matzo ball mix. She says, and I threw it away. She says, and this is how I now make my matzo balls. Oh, I wow. think that really personified how these recipes really did evolve. Not that there weren't some women who were sitting there and crushing those, you know, nuts for the rugelach or weren't hand beating the eggs, you know, for, for the kugel. But I'm going to say most of them figured out a very smart way to get around that and modernized it and simplified their work. And nobody was the wiser. That's fascinating, as is the whole subject of authenticity and recipes. And are these women still saying, this is my grandmother's recipe? Probably. Probably. Right. And, and again, I'll tell you, yes. tell you an aside, is that there was almost no recipe that I was given that I didn't think they deliberately left out one ingredient. <laughs> Because I am convinced that when people have that family recipe, they really don't want someone else to make it as well as they do. Well, you know, it's funny because they say that about professional chefs, too, that someone will ask a recipe of a chef and, you know, it will be given and it's never right because they are so sure that they left out at it least one very ingredient. very proprietary. Well, yes, yes, yes. So speaking of... Um, be, well, a proprietary recipe relates to the legacy recipe question I want to ask you. But before that, even, uh, guilty pleasures. Is there some food that you just can't get enough of or you eat when no one else is watching? Well, one of my friends says that one of the things she really in enjoys most and understands how important food is to me is that on a night where my husband might be out, I will still make myself a duck a l'orange. I will make myself a wild rice. I will have a salad with a dressing that I bottled earlier in the day. That I I truly take my food very seriously. So while a large part of cooking for most people is the ability to share that pleasure with other people, I'm going to say it is not secret, 
my guilty pleasures I share and I also keep all for myself. So <laughs> I, you could get me a bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken and I would just be as happy as anyone could be. A bag of red licorice, you honestly, <laughs> there's very little I wouldn't do for a bag of red licorice. And it, it's something that everybody who knows me, they all know those foods that just float my boat. My sister once made me a birthday party and she brought in buckets of chicken and dessert were yodels and ringdings because I was just as happy as can be with that simple, simple food. Throw in some mac and cheese or mashed potatoes and you've really, really, really rounded it out. But um, as much as I enjoy fine dining... June, you know, there's a very famous saying by it. the great Brilliant Savarin, tell me what you eat and I'll tell you who you are yes. or I'll tell you what you are. Um, your story <laughs> kind of defies description from your making duck a l'orange for yourself to, you know, but I guess we grew up sort of in the same generation because I too love yodels, especially when they're frozen. <laughs> so, But, you know, when they took out the uh, trans fat from a lot of these uh, baked goods, they're not quite as tasty anymore. They are not quite as tasty, <laughs> which, you know, brings me back to that concept of if you make it yourself and you make it at home, for goodness sakes, put fat in it because fat is good for you. Yes. It really is. Science it's, is coming around to telling us that. It's the kind of fat and how we eat it and how we combine it and how we balance it. But it's it's good for you. Add that fat in because you're going to be satiated and you're going to feel good after you eat it. You're going to eat less of it, but you're going to feel happy after you eat it. And after all, that's really the whole point of eating is to enjoy it. Yes, What's absolutely. the point otherwise? <laughs> so tell us about a legacy recipe, the recipe either that you have that either has the greatest story to go with it or the recipe that you want your grandchildren to remember you by. And my recipe has both. Uh-huh. It is a recipe that has an amazing story with it <laughs> and a recipe that I hope my grandchildren continue to make. My great-grandmother, Esther, who hailed from the Isle of Rhodes, my father's side of the family is Sephardic, my mother's side of the family is Ashkenazi, so I'm kind of the product of a mixed marriage. And the food in our household at the holidays reflected both cultures. The dish that was iconic from my Sephardic side of the family, from my great-grandma, Esther, is something that we call Passover matzah meat cakes. I'm sure that somewhere down the line there was a true name for it, but we call them Passover matzah meat cakes. And she taught my grandmother, her daughter-in-law, how to make this dish. And I truly, you know the expression, you stood at your grandmother's knee. I truly stood at my grandmother's knee and I learned how to make matzah meat cakes. They take all day. They are laborious. They are time intensive, but they are the dish that my family feels Passover is not complete unless we have them. So much to the extent that my nephew, who is my chief enjoyer of matzah meat cakes, who thinks I should set up a, a street side stand and sell them a truck. annually. A truck. <laughs> Ants once crawled into the tray because I let them cool in the garage, and he said, can't we just brush the ants off them and still eat them? Well, I the would. answer, well, <laughs> I'm going to say I'm not sure what he did in the privacy of the kitchen, but our answer at the table was no. But they are iconic to my family. Now, a new story developed around matzo meat cakes that truly is 
the meant to be in because I am such a believer in meant to be's. I, I think I was meant to write recipes remembered. I think I I was meant to share those stories with others so that they could now share the legacy of this community with their families and hopefully generations to come. And it brought me to whatever it is that I'm doing today. It changed my life. A life-changing event took place with Recipes Remembered. And it involves a young lady. Her name is Jennifer Abadi. She's a wonderful cookbook author, wrote a book called A Fistful of Lentils, and has a more recent book out now um, about Passover recipes. And she, I reached out to professional chefs in connection with Recipes Remembered to help round out some of the recipes I was writing and to honor the survivor's legacy with a recipe of their own. And some wonderful chefs contributed recipes to the book. Jennifer Abadi was one of them. And Jennifer emailed me and she said, gee, do you make anything special for Passover? And I said, I do. Matter of fact, <laughs> I make these matzo meat cakes because I've never heard of them. I'd love to learn how to make them. She lived across the park from me and she came over to my apartment one day in September. I think she had either just had a baby or was just expecting. And we cooked together and I made this recipe. But because it takes such a long time and Jennifer and I didn't know each other, we now sat down at the kitchen table, and to be honest, we were looking for things to discuss. And at the time, <laughs> she had her tape recorder going because she was following my instructions of how to write the recipe. And as a side conversation, she said, so tell me about your kids. And I said, oh, I have uh, one married daughter, Allison, and um, I have another daughter, single daughter. Her name is Jennifer, like you. She said, really? And I said, yeah. I said, you know any nice young men? And she said, well, what's she looking for? I said, well, she's looking for somebody who has a great sense of humor, enjoys sports, um, you know, that they have a lot in common, has to be really smart. And Jen said, you know, I have a half brother. His name is Seth. She said, I don't really think he's seeing anybody. You think your daughter would, would be amenable to meeting him? I said, absolutely. Seth is the father of my two of my <laughs> grandchildren, Henry and Aria. And they went out on a first date about a month after Jennifer and I spoke. At their rehearsal dinner, we played the tape of us making the shidduch, the arrangement, <laughs> and making the, um, the matchup. And they're married, uh, I guess, six, seven years and have two beautiful children. And I've got a third granddaughter, Daisy, from Allison and my son-in-law, Dan. But it is the beshert, the meant-to-be of Recipes Remembered that brought me together with this young lady and then brought my daughter together with the person who is her meant-to-be and forever changed all of our lives. So this it is now has, extraordinary. It is. It now has so much meaning to me. So matzo meat cakes, I don't know, maybe everybody should make them at home and see what happens and what trajectory in their lives might change from the cosmic forces of Passover matzo meat cakes. <laughs> Who knows? Or just the you know cosmic forces of sharing and sharing recipes that really can belong to any community. This is such a happy, wonderful story. Yeah. Um, so June, what does, after all of this, what does one woman kitchen mean to you? I think when there is one woman in a kitchen, there are a hundred women in that kitchen with her. And I think the hundred women represent 
all of the women in her life who have influenced and inspired her. So when I am one woman in my kitchen, I am thinking of my mom and those heavy sinking matzo balls. <laughs> I'm thinking of my grandmother who taught me this recipe. I'm thinking of my great-grandmother who taught it to her. I'm thinking of the women in my family who have eaten this recipe and who have wanted to prepare it in their own homes. And my friends who I've shared the recipe with and some who have even given me tidbits and tricks on, on how to improve certain aspects of it. And all of those women together make up that one woman who is in the kitchen. June, thank you. You're so beautiful. My pleasure. Um, I think everyone is going to want to stay connected to you. So how do we find you? <laughs> well, I was very active in social media when Recipes Remembered first came out. And I am still there. I'm on Instagram generally to see truthfully pictures of my adorable grandchildren. But <laughs> having said that, I still am there at June Hirsch, and it's H-E-R-S-H. -H. No, there is no C and uh, no I. I'm on Twitter. Maybe now that I'm starting to write another food book, I will go back to it. And again, um, that's where you can find me. And I'm online. I have um, a website that I Get emails through. Yes. What is the, um, what is the website? It's junehirsch.com. And um, my unofficial mantra and company name is Eat Well, Do Good, because I think you can accomplish both. And I'd like to think that that's what these books have done up till now. And I hope that even with the book on yogurt, there will be a charitable component that goes with it, because um, to me, without that aspect Harkening back to that comment that my sister made that resonated, that uh, we did well, now let's do good. I think without the the component of doing good, I don't think it uh, it has the same meaning to me. Thank you so much. And thank you to everyone for joining us and the 100 women in June Hirsch's kitchen. This is Roseanne Gold. And thanks for coming to my kitchen. One Woman Kitchen is produced by Mouth Media Network, copyright 2019. Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold and check out everything I'm up to on my website at roseannegold.com. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.